the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. That's the one and only super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Give him, give him some hands. Uh, they don't have to Wait, be your but, own. But don't, don't throw hands. Don't like, throw give hands. Him, put, put them together for him. Or put your he hands deserve, up if you're not driving. deserve your fisticuffs. You know? right? keep, your, uh, keep your hands in your pockets if you're going to be throwing those things around. Yes, that is hand advice from your uh, fellow ridiculous historians. Uh, Ben, Noel, you and I were both very taken by the whimsy of a quote that our old pal Gabe dug up for today's episode. I say we split it just because it's so much fun to read. Is that cool with you? Totally. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, Here we go. Call us not weeds. We are flowers of the sea, for lovely and bright and gay-tinted are we. And quite independent of sunshine and showers. Oh, call us not weeds. We are ocean's gay flowers. Now, Based I knew you were going to do the weedy old man voice on that one, Ben. I knew de- you were going to do it that. It demands it. It demands it, Noel. It really does. <laughs> and, and I love how we were leaning into the invisible H's after those W's. Well, that's not weeds. <laughs> so, so based on that description, it may be a little bit tough to guess what the subject of that rhyme is. However, if you play it back and if you listen to it and treat it like, you know, unpacking a riddle, a lot of us have probably guessed correctly that is a little poem about seaweed. Noel, Max, you guys, you guys have eaten Japanese cuisine, right? You've had like mm-hmm. seaweed salad and so on. Yeah, I like seaweed salad. Uh, it's one of those things that I, you know, discovered when I worked at this restaurant back in Augusta. It's also the place where I learned to cook and really enjoy cooking. But it was the kind of thing I probably never would have thought out on my own. But it was on the menu, and I tried it, and I love it. I mean, it's obviously a lot of it has to do with the sesame flavoring and the the seasoning and all that. It is a little on the slimy side, but once you get past the texture, or maybe even lean into the texture, it is delicious. But then there's a there's crispy versions of it. Oh, you can yeah. get little seaweed snacks or oh, the kind of wraps that you use for hand rolls, for example, or even like you know the the kind of what do you call the sushi that's with the rice and the and the seaweed wrap? What was that called? That's sashimi? I think the wrap is no? nori. No. That's well, nori, but there's a name for the kind that's wrapped mm. like this. Sashimi is just the the fish. 
and then there's nigiri. That's just on rice. And then mm. there's another name for the one with the with the uh, seaweed around it. That's like people a are yelling roll. at their phones. You know, the yeah. hand roll. But I'm talking about the little sliced ones. You know, the little pieces. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. rice on the inside. It's like a layer of seaweed, layer of rice, and then the good stuff on the inside. There's another name for that, but we'll just leave that to people I to yell at their uh, podcast apps. I know what that one is. Yeah, I don't want to get too caught in the weeds, but I. And the weeds, you say? Oh, and the seaweeds. There we are. Yeah, but um, but we're we're uh, oh, yeah. I want to jump in. Uh, is it nori maki? Oh, it's maki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Maki awesome. rolls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boom. Yes. So fact. good too. Um, really makes me miss just being able to stroll into a convenience store in Japan and eat like a king so inexpensively. But well, there's always grocery store sushi, Ben. There's always grocery store sushi. There is. There is. Um, and we are lucky enough to have some really good sushi spots here in Atlanta. But being so far inland and not being in Japan, uh, we do pay a premium for that. So really good sushi is kind of a special occasion thing for us here. Uh, but seaweed goes so far beyond sushi. We're just talking about sushi because we like food and that's uh, that's going to be the main touch point for us in the world of seaweed. But seaweed's been around forever. Everybody knows what it is. You don't have to live by the ocean to know about seaweed. And today's episode, which was arguably cursed for a while, is mm-hmm. about a very weird Victorian hobby. People started getting into really into seaweed, like uh, treating it as though it were almost like Pokemon today. As though it were, as so, if it were so. Yes, just so. I love it. We teased it a little bit in the episode that we did with the Ridiculous Romance crew that we had an episode coming up that uh, involves scrapbooking to some degree because uh, we were talking about Valentine's and like, you know, making lace kind of, you know, little ephemera. And uh, today really does kind of uh, discuss the the art of scrapbooking, specifically seaweed scrapbooking. As kind of a weird form of women's empowerment in the Victorian age, because as as many folks know, the 19th century um, was not the most liberating of times for women, uh, especially in Victorian England, uh, where they were, you know, kept in many respects, in most respects, in fact, outside of the ones that we're going to talk about today. They were required chaperones in order to venture outside of the home. They were, you know, largely, almost exclusively treated as kind of domestic uh, servants, essentially, in service to to their uh, their their male counterparts. Um, but it wasn't really counterpart because there was no equality there whatsoever. Uh, more like their male masters, honestly. That's kind of how it was treated, though, sort of the attitude of the time. But there was a new thing happening a very widespread interest in the natural sciences. Uh, And that was because of discoveries from people like Darwin. Uh, Who else, Ben, was contributing to this um, interest in in nature? Oh, so much. There's so much stuff here. Uh, We're talking about a time of great scientific discovery and breakthroughs. Uh, And we're talking about some deep and profound paradigm shifts in society at this time. Because you pointed out, the dichotomy in which this story takes place. Everybody is fascinated by scientific investigation, right? People want to, as hobbies, learn more about the natural world, but at the same time, society only wants certain members of the population to learn. Like if you're, if you're a little dude, then go get your chemistry set. But if you're a woman, whether child or adult, then civilization is telling you, whoa, that's that's men's stuff. Stay home Mm -hmm. and you can like music and you can like to decorate things. But that's that's where we draw the line. And don't talk to me about voting. That's what society would say. A hundred percent. If you're a dude, go watch that bird. Hell, kill that bird. Stuff that bird. Mount that bird. You know, like Mount, like taxidermy, you mm-hmm. know, because at the, again, uh, another big uh, figure at this time was John James Audubon, you know, who established mm-hmm. the Audubon Society. You mentioned the idea of membership. Um, the things like the Audubon Society inspired 
countless smaller kind of offshoots and, and clubs, organizations where members would participate in, in different outdoorsy type activities, whether it be bird watching or rock collecting or, you know, mineral hunting or, or, or whatever. But women were almost exclusively not permitted to join these clubs, except when it came to the idea of taking in the country air, you know, going for a dip in the ocean, you know, but not too far, just a, just a dip of the toe and, uh, and make sure to keep on those petticoats ladies. Mm. Um, because otherwise it would be untoward, but it's true. There became this sort of offshoot of all this naturalism that was considered like for, for the girls. And it was the collecting of seaweed, the collecting, drying, and preserving in albums or scrapbooks of seaweed was huge, particularly in the middle class, uh, not only in England, but also in New England, in America. Yeah, this was a transatlantic phenomenon. And I love the idea of people taking a constitutional, I just enjoy Victorian phrases so very much. People are into fur and feathers. They're into taxidermy. We're we're seeing the age of the self-described gentleman scientist, which I love. I love the idea of a gentleman scientist. They travel across the planet, just collecting plants and animals, describing them, classifying them. It's cool to be a nerd at this time. A lot of people want to be nerds, but there's still a lot of misogyny. This misogyny is not going to hold. It's it's not a sustainable type of discrimination in this part of history because we're seeing the democratization of technology and of learning. There are more rail networks expanding, you know, definitely in the UK, and more people are having more free time. So you don't necessarily have to be a viscount or an archduke to care about studying, you know, birds or bats or what have you. You now just are a person who has a hobby. Microscopes are no longer insanely expensive. Mm -hmm. Bird collecting clubs, well, collecting clubs of any kind start spring up like wildfire across Britain. And this is where I think we should introduce a guy named Dr. Stephen Hunt, a researcher in environmental humanities working at the University of the West of England. And he notes all these factors and says that because of this, in the 19th century, Britain became a hotbed of biological enthusiasm and natural history encountered this sort of, you could call it a a renaissance, but not the renaissance time period, a renaissance in interest. It's an amazing time for scientists. It really is. And um, Cara Giaimo over at Atlas Obscura, wrote a really fantastic article called The Forgotten Victorian Craze for Collecting Seaweed um, that we refer to uh, for this episode uh, quite a few times. And these quotes from Dr. Stephen Hunt um, were originally seen in that article. And Hunt really describes it beautifully when he describes this as a democratization of natural history, you know, in the same way that I like to refer to, I mean, not just me, but like the democratization of technology is what is allowed in in the era that we currently live in, a lot of art to flourish, a lot of music to flourish. People now have GarageBand on their computers that comes like pre-installed. It's a lot more affordable to get a decent DSLR camera. Hell, they're on your phone, you know? So that is a similar situation where because of the things you were saying, Ben, like the prices of microscopes becoming much more affordable to, you know, maybe not the average person, but at the very least middle class. I guess that is kind of average, isn't it? Um, so let's just, yeah, go back to the average person. It was a big deal. People were able to kind of become these fair weather kind of natural history enthusiasts, but again, not women. And a lot of this too had to do with the shift to um, uh, wage earning, uh, wage labor, creating this very novel concept of free time. You know, people weren't just like mm-hmm. spinning yarn in the factory anymore or like, you know, shoveling coal. Uh, there was a lot more time to do things for leisure. By the way, I, I learned in this other article that we looked at, collectorsweekly.com, who published an article uh, called When Housewives Were Seduced by Seaweed, Scandalous, that refers to the idea of a withdrawing room. I didn't know 
that drawing room was short for withdrawing room. And I want to say, isn't it a really kind of superfluous shortening? Like, is withdrawing that much longer than just drawing? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that that was necessary, but it's funny. The withdrawing room was, of course, like, you know, the parlor, right? Where people would hang out and maybe do their, uh, do their little, little crafts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is also the age where the well-to-do people have very specific rooms or areas of their estates. The orangery, right? Where you just grow oranges to flex on people. So it's not it's not too unusual, but it, it stinks to be a woman or someone identifying as female and have this same interest in the natural world and continually get stonewalled by people. It, it may strike many of us as, odd or paradoxical or hypocritical today to realize that the folks who were really into learning and and thought of themselves was very intelligent were also very into gatekeeping. The Royal Society, the Linnaean Society, all those groups refused female members and some wouldn't even let them show up to the public speeches where we're like, mm-hmm. hey, let's explain what a badger is. And Women weren't allowed to hunt animals. It was seen as too dangerous. And digging up plants was, get this, seen as like too erotically charged. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's because, well, why? Because plants like reproduce, you know? Like, uh, isn't it asexually though? Uh, I don't fully understand. Well, <laughs> I mean, maybe some plants are vaguely vaginal, but honestly, uh, what's more vaginal and kind of erotic than seaweed? <laughs> what? Just wait when these guys hear about Georgia O'Keeffe. Anyhow, like the the Linnaean botany, like this thought was based on the sexual parts of the of the plant, according to Dr. Hunt. So it was seen as controversial, and as we said earlier, untoward to be digging plants out of the ground because it, it was too sexually charged. And that's where seaweed comes in. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonneville's. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man, and funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. 
Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This story is strange, but seaweed is seen as very wholesome. It's very, like, innocuous. It doesn't have a bunch of sex organs that worry the, the more prudish people in society. And it's kind of close to home because a lot of people live mm -hmm. on the coastline. So it's considered healthy and wholesome or allowable for women to go take in the shore and, and stroll along the beach. They might just go on a family vacation. They might be trying to get to a place with better weather because of a medical condition. And a lot of them are already really into scrapbooking. So they notice that seaweed has such a vast variety of sizes and, and shapes. And they started saying, hey, this is decoration. Society will allow us to do decoration. They'll allow us to do scrapbooking. But at the same time, we are going to be able to satisfy some part of our scientific curiosity without the boys clubs of the world shutting us down yet again. Yeah, it's... um. It's interesting. I mean, things like pressing flowers or drying and pressing flowers was already pretty popular, despite the, the hilarious idea of plants being controversial because of their sexuality. Uh, that just really cracks me up. But um, this is just kind of an extension of that. Seaweed and is perfectly fit for this because it can flatten out beautifully. And uh, you can you know, kind of paste it to a page. You can even use photographic technology or photographic techniques to create what are called cyanotype prints. Uh, there was a very well-known book uh, at the time um, by Anna Atkins called Photographs of British Algae. This is in the 1840s, by the way. And um, she used essentially just photographic, light-sensitive, you know, photographic paper uh, to create these cyanotype prints to document these various types of seaweed. And when you look at some of these books, I really recommend checking out that uh, Atlas Obscure article. Ben, I know you're a big fan of the Voynich Manuscript. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you own a copy of it. We've talked about it many times on our other podcast stuff that I don't want you to know for anyone that's not familiar. It is a, a mysterious book that kind of chronicles a lot of like alien flora and fauna, but more and more flora really, right, than fauna. Um, I guess it has some kind of like creatures depicted in it, but a lot of it, very seaweed-like, wouldn't you say? And, and also very similar layout to what you see in, in some of these uh, British, um, you know, uh, seaweed scrapbooks. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love whenever somebody mentions that manuscript, I'd also like to shout out uh, a thematic successor to that, the Codex Serafineus. Uh, so shout out to Luigi Serafini for making a on-purpose, incomprehensible book. It's such a great read. Uh, maybe we should start a book club. But how do you start a book club with books that are designed not to be legible? Anyway, story for another day, but you you are right. People are all of a sudden in the world of publishing discovering that books on identifying and preserving seaweed are a surefire bet. People are going to buy them. So now there's a, there's a market motivation to popularize this idea. More and more people get involved. We mentioned New England, um, mentioned the UK, also Canada. A lot of Canadian people start going into tide pools to collect and press seaweed of their own. Now, it, it didn't get as popular as some other hobbies at the time because you needed a little more technical aptitude to press seaweed and seaweed doesn't grow everywhere. It's in the name. You know what I mean? So if you mm -hmm. are inland, you're going to have to take a trip. You're going to have to physically go somewhere to engage in this hobby. And there, there were, to be clear, there were some male seaweed collectors but they lived a very different life. They were starting on third base in this endeavor. They <laughs> they were able to be. Scientists. They did it by choice. They could they could have done whatever else they wanted, but they chose the seaweed life. The seaweed life didn't choose them. Yeah, yeah. Well put. Uh, so women were 
you know, again, not seen as scientists by the powers that be at this point. So if a guy is collecting seaweed, like if Max is out collecting seaweed and makes a book about it, then Max is going to be treated like the preeminent scientist of seaweed. And then if we had, you know, um, like Eve's Jeffcoat doing the same work at the same time, society would have instead treated her as like a person with a quirky, cute hobby, even though they were both like conducting real science. Absolutely. And and let's let's not forget, um, this is something that really takes uh, uh, some talent um, at the very least stick to itiveness and, and, and the ability to really like learn how to do this correctly. Because like you said, Ben, it wasn't nearly as easy as maybe dried flowers. Uh, not anyone could do this. Uh, the article that I mentioned earlier in uh, Collectors Weekly, uh, when housewives are seduced by seaweed by Hunter Oatman Stanford has a really great quote that I think sums this up nicely. He says, part of the appeal was what a seaweed collection said about the collector. Anyone could appreciate and collect flowers, but painstakingly obtaining, preserving, and mounting seaweed specimens demonstrated patience, artistic talent, and the refined sensibilities necessary to appreciate the more subtle beauties of nature. And, and in fact, Queen Victoria uh, was known, you know, uh, you know, of the Victorian age, Queen, that Queen Victoria was known to have made a seaweed album when she was uh, a young lady. See, even, even the Queen approves. Off mic, Max, you had some? I was just going to say at the moment that I resent you for make, putting me in that comparison, making me the bad guy. Oh, <laughs> we'll keep it. No, 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 Sorry, Max. I have a, I have a little list to the uh, to the right of my monitor of who has to who has to be the bad cop. So I, I, I rotated out, but prioritize the three of us over guests just because we could take it. You know, usually mm-hmm. you'll you'll be the good guy in a later example. Sure. <laughs> OK. <laughs> All right. And hold me to that. So you make a great point, Noel, too, that the the idea that the most powerful political figure and social figure in the country also approves. People are going to be incredibly hesitant to criticize seaweed collecting when the monarchy itself is engaged in it. And there's a religious aspect here that we also have to acknowledge. It's discussed by Peter Harrington over at peterharrington.co.uk, where he explores this idea of the interrelationship of seaweed collecting in society. And he said, uh, if you go to his website, actually, you'll see a real, a real live seaweed scrapbook. And it looks really cool. It looks professional. There's a great artistry to it. But for the Victorians, the natural world was still very much tied to religious and moral ideas. So if you were going to defend yourself if you're identifying as female at this time and somebody's giving you a hard time about seaweed collecting, what you could do is say, well, this, I'm, you know, very pious and this gives me a new appreciation of the world God created. And then people would say, all right, as long as you're not doing science, right? Okay. Then we'll back to back to whatever game we're playing in the withdrawing room. Whist is whist a card game? What is whist? Whist. whist. Uh, I well, I mean, you can be one can be whistful, so it should uh, logic follows that whist is a thing that one can be full of. But I don't know what it is. It is a game, and it's a game they would have played, right? You, of course, yeah. you know, Max. What is whist? Whist is a classic English trick-taking card game. I am totally not reading this off Wikipedia, which was played widely in the 18th and 19th centuries. Although the rules are simple, there is a scope for strategic play. So, yeah, there's no answer in what I just said right there. Interesting. And uh, also not reading off of uh, Wikipedia. I'm reading off Etymology Online. Uh, Actually, Etym Online. That's a portmanteau. It's hard to say. Um, Wistful is actually described as being closely attentive. I always thought wistful meant you were kind of like melancholy or, or morose. I've, I've been, yeah, I've been misusing that, I guess. Uh, it says here, um, wistful, uh, well, never mind. The etymology is a little different than maybe the way it's used uh, in, you know, the parlance of our times. 
but it it does refer to an early 17th century um, kind of, I guess, abs- obsolete kind of translation of the word uh, wistly, which uh, could have been influenced by the word wishful. So unrelated to the game wist, I was hoping there was a connection. But as is the case with etymology, sometimes the obvious seeming thing has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, like the word lepidopterist. They study butterflies and moths. Well, but Lepidoptura is the genus, I believe, of butterflies, right? Yes. Yeah. And we know this because I introduced this. uh, I I was waiting for a chance to use that word for years and years. And it came up in Strange News, which is a weekly segment we do on stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, We're we're always learning uh, weird and strange things. So shout out to any Lepidopterist in the crowd, uh, amateur or professional. And good luck with QAnon. That's part of the story. You'll have to tune in to see what we're talking about. But that's please do. It's a, it's a fun episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, fun yeah. results. Mileage may vary on the fun, but we always inject some fun into the proceedings, even if it's a heavy topic. We sure try, no, we sure try. So let's say you go to see a seaweed display, and someone's like, "Look at the seaweeds I have collected." What would this look like? Um, there's a cool website from Harvard University's library that talks about the process. Basically, first you you clean it in salt water, then you place it on the special mounting paper, and then uh, the collector kind of cleans it up. They might trim stuff they don't want on there. They'll spend some time carefully arranging it just so in a way they find aesthetically pleasing. Then it's layered between another kind of paper, blotting paper, and you just put a lot of weight on it until it dries and all the moisture is gone. So like 50 pounds of something, you know, and in and, and that way, it's similar to pressing flowers. Uh, here's what happens when you're doing this. Seaweed starts exuding a gunk, like a gelatinous material that yeah. sticks that replaces adhesive. It's kind of, it's almost like okra, which is a mucilaginous vegetable. That's why okra has snot. And that's another word I never get to say. I am knocking them off the list here, man. But yeah, seaweed snot. Yeah, but and I just have to say, uh, okra for me is is pretty useless unless fried uh, and dipped in some sort of sauce because uh, I, I don't really particularly need snot inside my vegetables. Thank you very much. Yeah, you know, teach their own, teach their own. Some people uh, look at okra and say, I've got enough snot already, but there you just have, it's tricky to cook it, you know, well, uh, anyway, before I, before I accidentally turn this into a segment on uh, weird okra facts, it's pretty neat that the seaweed itself can produce its own glue. So you don't see actual glue holding the specimens down. And as far as the Harvard library is concerned, this was a pretty great a pretty great process because it also removed any uncouth smells. Uh, they say that the album they have doesn't have an odor, but they they're still on the fence about whether it doesn't smell because of the the process of pressing it or just because this book is also more old. And then <laughs> and then going back to that collectorsweekly.com article that you mentioned earlier, Noel, there's a great moment in there where <laughs> the author says, the Victorian era was also a more pungent time. So I suspect they either wouldn't have been bothered by the smell or they would have used a creative method to minimize it. I love just thinking of an era of time as generally more pungent. I mean, sure, we talked about in a, in a past episode the great stink of London. You oh, know, yeah. uh, I mean, sewage for a time uh, just ran rampant through the streets. It was a smelly, smelly time to be alive. Bathing was a, a real luxury for many folks, mm-hmm. even the upper class, you know. And, and what, what didn't they like wash their whites in urine sometimes too? Well, yeah, you know, sometimes you get in situations. You sure do, Ben. You sure do. <laughs> That's one of those responses we just won't follow up on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. 
So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's give some shout outs to notable seaweed hunters. Right now, we don't know in terms of solid numbers, we don't know how many people were out hunting and displaying seaweed. Uh, we mentioned Queen Victoria. She's one of the most famous seaweed collectors. Uh, author George Eliot has talked about uh, an interest in seaweeds. And some people did make some coin off of it. People like Margaret Gatty, who was an author of children's books and then started collecting seaweed while she was uh, convalescing, recovering from illness in 1848 in the southeast of Britain. She was what people started to call a seaweeder. Her book, British Seaweeds, describes a ton of local seaweeds, and it's a really nice book. It's got uh, colored plates. It's It's prestigious. It's what you would have like put on a coffee table to impress your guests. Absolutely. And think about it back in those days. I mean, it, there wouldn't be mass production of these types of, you know, very bespoke books. They would have been much rarer and like cooler, you know, with like uh, engraved printing and, and you know, gold foiling and things like that. I mean, that would have been a really cool book. It makes me like start wanting to get into like vintage book collecting. But that is a slippery slope, my friend. <laughs> a it very is. deep and expensive rabbit hole. It really is. And I've, you know, I've got some, I've got some nice books. I've got some, uh, I have a few from my dad, like old mm-hmm. Dickens books that are very, very, very beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah. And I've got, I've got some friends who collect books as well, but it can be, it can be a very expensive hobby. So you could, you might, if you are a bibliophile, uh, you might have a seaweed book of this sort somewhere in your collection. It's possible because we we know just based on the number of these books that are around from that era that it was a pretty popular pursuit. Now, even if you're at the level of Margaret Gaddy, 
you're still not calling yourself a scientist. You're saying, I appreciate God's grace and nature's beauty. And if you read some of the statements that people make about this in this field, like Dr. Hunt points out, a lot of the writers were kind of self-deprecating. They really took pains not to anger those those boys clubs that wouldn't let them into the meetings, which stinks because they're doing valuable work. And in some cases, people came to rely on it just to spice up their day, to spice up the weeks. They called it a, a necessary repast. Uh, that's at least what Gaddy said when she wrote a letter about seaweed collecting to her sister-in-law. And because they, like the the language they use is so evocative uh, it doesn't have the same kind of dry classification, uh, technical writing aspects of what of like male seaweed hunters uh, in British seaweeds. There's this one description is cool, and this was in uh, this is an Atlas Obscura too. Uh, one specimen of seaweed is described as get this. I thought you would like this word, delicately membranaceous. Oh yeah, membranaceous, M- M- mucilaginous, and membranaceous. <laughs> yeah, is this the same uh, person that kind of gave some tips on how to go about it, uh, the process, like for a for a novice? Yes, yeah, she's uh, popularizing this. Gaddy is popularizing this, and also is kind of an uh, an evangelist for seaweed collecting. Yeah, evangelist, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, there there, there was a kind of religious uh, reverie uh, attached to this, um, you know, process of, of somehow getting closer to what God hath made, you know, and all of that stuff. Um, but uh, Gaddy gives some tips, you know, to kind of further democratize this process and, and let, you know, uh, maybe women that are wanting to kind of dip their toe in, the, uh, in seaweed collecting, uh, some tips on how to go about it. Uh, one, uh, I mentioned earlier about the idea of wearing your petticoats, you know, while on the seaweed hunt, uh, that came directly from her. She encouraged, uh, would be seaweed hunters to continue to wear their petticoats on top. She said, but she refers to them as necessary, dra- necessary draperies. Right. Um, but then suggests that they should wear men's boots and own it. She has this quote, uh, Feel all the luxury of not having to be afraid of your boots. Feel all the comfort of walking steadily forward. The very strength of the souls making you tread firm. Mm-hmm. And, and and I will say, I remember I had this uh, boss, this really cool older dude named Alan Cook, who he's a great guitar player. I worked for him at a radio station and he like did this classical music show. But he gave me this really good piece of advice one time. He said, if you're doing yard work, wear those really thick leather gardening gloves. He said, because they make you stronger. And he's right. If you have, if you're not afraid of, you know, dinging up your delicate, you know, fingies, you're going to grip things harder and you're going to be more confident. And I love this idea of like feeling the souls making you tread firm. You know, it reminds me of that uh, piece of advice I got. Yeah, yeah. That's great advice. Honestly, Uh, there's another piece of advice that uh, Gaddy gives where she says she basically tells people to use the buddy system. Uh, She's because, you know, they're still getting a little further away from urban areas. Shores can be dangerous. There's slippery rocks. Tides can be tricky if you get too far out. So that leads Getty to write, A low watermark expedition is more comfortably undertaken under the protection of a gentleman. Uh, so <laughs> she also talks about how to convince a guy to go with you on this thing. Uh, and she says, you know, try to sweeten the pot with enticements. And she notes, he may fossilize or sketch, or even, if he will be savage and barbaric, shoot gulls. So it's like saying to, you know, a partner or someone you know who's a dude saying, I, I want to go seaweed hunting, but it'll be fun for you too. You can shoot some seagulls. I don't know, man, make the most of it. <laughs> and that's how they would try to get a chaperone because chaperone chaperoning was still very much a thing, right? And now that we've kind of laid out 
what this was, how popular it was, even though a lot of people today have never heard about it, we have to ask, why is it not around today? Why did it eventually, and we're not, we didn't make up dry this up. pun. Yeah, yeah, why did it dry out? We, we've we seen this pun referenced in multiple sources, or this wordplay. Uh, and this was a fad. It was a very popular fad, but it was a fad. And no, what do fads do? They just kind of go away after a time. Sometimes, they, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes it's unfair to label something as a fad. It could just yeah. be cyclical, right? Sometimes things are really hot and then they kind of go away and they come back into fashion. So uh, just because something is labeled as a fad doesn't mean it's like forever irrelevant. Uh, who knows? There could be a new seaweed craze come back. Uh, people love all this kind of vintage stuff. And everyone that I've told about this, A, had no idea this was ever a thing. And B, is instantly like, oh, that kind of makes sense. That sounds kind of cool, but also it does require sort of a position of privilege, doesn't it? Because you have to be near the seaside. You have to be geographically adjacent to a place where seaweed naturally occurs, or I don't know, maybe you can get it by mail, but that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like that would do the trick. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's fancy ways of preserving the stuff in the mail, but that sort of like takes half the fun out of it, doesn't it? Right. So this is weird because it became a little less popular as Victorian society began to be less uptight. It began to be okay to just say, I'm going to go have fun. You know what I mean? And so even if you look at a lot of the experts, they're not a hundred percent sure exactly when seaweed collecting became less cool, but they're guessing it happened in the late 19th century as Victorian as Victorian thoughts give way to what we would call modernism. And it's kind of hard to find scrapbooks or guidebooks past that area of time. But we can safely say it was probably still practiced by a few people. Uh, it was, there, there may be people with this hobby today because for some folks, there's a lot of nostalgia in it. You know, like I went and collected seaweed as a young child with my mother. And now I, I meet my sister every summer and we collect seaweed for our family seaweed book. That's cool. That's wholesome. It is. All of this stuff's pretty wholesome. You know, this is one of the most wholesome episodes I think we've done in a while, aside from the whole rampant misogyny that sort of forced women to traipse around in, in ponds, uh, in men's boots, secretly, you know, obscured beneath their petticoats. But at the end of the day, this does kind of mark one of those crossover moments, Ben, you know what I mean? Between, like, a generation almost, where it's like the softening of the attitude. Like, well, women can maybe collect seaweed and make scraps books. And then before you know it, enough time goes by, women can look through microscopes and then women can, you know, work outside the home. <laughs> Crazy to think, but it is little steps like this that lead to those larger overarching changes in, in the way, uh, you know, society uh, treated women. Yeah, exactly. And there's another change that may be on the way. Scrapbooking is still very popular. Um, I think our pal Diana Brown over at Ridiculous Romance told us she actually went to a scrapbooking convention one time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And do check out Ridiculous Romance. Uh, we are Please. huge, huge fans of the shows. Um, so it's weird that we think, uh, like we see another sea change because scrapbooking is still around. But what happens when the idea of preserving ephemera like this, shout out to you, Max, what happens when it moves into the digital realm? Like, yes, everybody has a camera on their phone or a lot of people have cameras on their phones and they take excellent photos. But what are your mm -hmm. odds of printing that and making a little book with it? You're, you might you probably just forward it and say like, ha ha, last night was epic. Oh, it's a really good point, Ben. And it's something that we, we haven't discussed at all. But I think we talked about a little bit off podcast. Yeah, the idea of, you know, my mom is very, uh, very still fixated on having printed things because she doesn't really, she's really comfortable with the digital realm. Um, she, you know, it's a really good Christmas present for her if I like take some cell phone photos and like get them printed because there are, you know, websites that'll make a pretty nice high quality print out of these high resolution phone photos. But most people, you're right, don't go to those steps. And that's what puts things in the realm of ephemera. Shout out to Ephemeral, uh, the show uh, that our, uh, our buddy Alex Williams and super producer Max Williams uh, make uh, together, um, in addition to a few other amazing folks. Um, but it's a show about things that kind of 
disappear over time, whether because they're lost or they just deteriorate. There is something finite about these things, but in a way, something more lasting. Like, I don't know, like for some reason, like a digital file to me, while sure, it's technically indestructible, you couldn't reproduce it given an apocalypse event anymore if you didn't have the technology to uh, encode it or to, to decode it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a wax cylinder or like a vinyl record or a photograph or something like that, you could find ways to probably rig something up to enjoy that. You know, like you could probably make a turntable out of a coconut and some pine needles or something. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of half joking, but I'm also not. Analog technology and just objects are in some ways, you know, more real inherently. Yeah, that's why I like older cars. That's why I prefer physical books uh, because the uh, it's just different. Re- reading a book that way, uh, the tangible aspect of it makes, in my opinion, whatever you're, uh, whatever you're digesting feel more real. And that's a great point. Now this is where we... Get, we, we're drawing a bit to a close. Margaret Gaddy had a long life and she loved seaweed collecting up until her up until she passed away in 1873. Her collections have survived. You can see them today at the St. Andrews University in Scotland, and curators have been working to restore these, to organize them. Uh, and she even has a species of Australian algae named after her, the Gaddia pinella. Uh, So congratulations to you, Margaret Gaddy. Although it took way too long, in my opinion, you did finally get your due. As a scientist, getting something named after you is pretty great, Mm -hmm. right? It is pretty great. And um, wasn't there a, a, a spider or something that was named after Dave Coulier recently? Or I don't know. I'm also a fan of like celebrity namings of, of creatures. I, think I know there's a David Bowie spider, you know, because like the spiders from Mars and all that. There are some incredibly funny ones, but I can't. I'm trying to remember. Uh, there were some examples I saw of names that were meant to be insulting, like you'd name a, a humble dung-related animal after some politician or celebrity didn't like, but just just for fun, let me read you guys some real names for things from our friends at Mental Floss, because we always love to shout out Mental Floss. These are real scientific names. <clears throat> Turdus Maximus. That's a bird. <laughs> Is that like the Turd Ferguson related? <laughs> I love that. Oh, Ben. I've already shouted you out for this, I believe. Maybe not on this show, but Ben gave me the most wonderful, thoughtful gift. Oh, it is yeah. a book called Dumb Birds of North America. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cover of it has a bird on it called like the North Kentucky butt nugget or something like that. And I'm not sure if the, if how much of it is real and how much of it is just total farce, but um, it's like the only bird book that I would ever want to own. And I thank you again. Oh, I'm uh, so glad uh, wholeheartedly you for that. I have it in my bathroom. It's like the bathroom reader for when guests are, you know, t- taking repose. That is a place <laughs> of prestige. Uh, and all the entries, just to shout that book out, uh, the field guide to dumb North American birds or dumb birds in North America. All the entries are, uh, Max bleep me on this, are stuff like, you know, the great American t- and the first paragraph, it says something like, this motherfucker is a real piece of crap. You know what I mean? Like, the, it's not for children, uh, but if you have, you have some, I, I don't know, I think teenagers would like that book too, right? Like, uh, your daughter likes it, I bet. Oh, absolutely. And my girlfriend, Day, loves it. Uh, I think she she is absolutely in love with that book. So it's a lot of fun. Check it out. But man, who knew that we could talk about seaweed scrapbooking for 45 minutes on a Tuesday? <laughs> I had a suspicion. And off air, I had um, we had been talking and I had said, okay, we might need to lean into the banter on this one and see what, you know if we have any tangents that'll take us someplace really crazy. Which is leading to, I think, our first ever tangent tease. It turns out that our good buddy, Mr. Max Williams, is an expert the sport of curling. And I, I don't know about you, Noel, but I have at best a very vague understanding of what curling is. So one day in an upcoming episode, we're going to have Max 
introduces to Curly, if you would be so kind, Mr. Williams. Seems like you'll need a lot of stuff. You know, first you need an ice rink, then you need those stones and the, the weird brooms yep. and special shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a lot less than you'd think. But uh, Ben, I do have a good, you know, teaser story. I remember it was the year it was 2018. It was in February. I was actually hanging out with uh, the esteemed Noel Brown at a cabin. In the and I was like, yeah, I'm about... I'm about to like, you know, watch the gold medal match United States versus Sweden. Uh-huh. Noel, I think just like looked at me, he goes, okay. And then went to the hot tub. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to be dismissive. As I just, you know, I just never met a curling enthusiast before. I remember you just being very confused the entire, you're like, so wait, you're going to stay up. Cause you know, it was in Korea. Right. It's very late. It's like, you're going to stay up really late and watch this. I'm like, yeah. He's like, Okay. All right. You know, you do you, buddy. That's how, how'd it go. You remember who won? Oh, yes. Uh, United States won the gold medal. Oh, my God. Nice. Congratulations. A year later or two years later. <laughs> so it, four years it later. It felt wow. worth it. Wow. Right. Uh, so this is just one example of many, many niche hobbies that came about during this time. There are other examples. Uh, diatom arranging in particular is really neat. They kind of look like uh, kaleidoscopes, if you ever had a kaleidoscope as a kid. But maybe those are a story for another day. I had a blast doing this one. We beat the curse I referenced. I guess we should mention that we wanted mm-hmm. to do this episode for a while, and we started wondering whether it was cursed. Yeah, it was uh, largely because of guest um, obligations. Mm-hmm. Not obligations. We love all our guests, and we had some incredible ones recently for some shows in the uh, extended ridiculous universe, the ER. You, right? Is that the one? And then we had some illness that that caused some problems and some scheduling things. But you're right. It's definitely one that we've punted quite a few times. But the good news is that because of that, I think we both got to spend a little more time with this material and realize that it is a really cool story and not um, in need of nearly as much banter as as we originally might have thought. But I'm glad we got to fit some of that in there at the end here. Thanks, Max, for sharing. (laughs) And thanks... (laughs) Thanks for tuning in, fellow Ridiculous Historians. We would love to hear your stories about weird hobbies from days of yore. Let us know. You can find us on our Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians. Uh, You can also hit us up any pretty much anywhere on social media, not just as a show, but as individuals. I am at Ben Bolin on Instagram. If you want spoilers for upcoming research and just weird rabbit holes I've found, I've fallen down. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Bolin HSW. How about you, Noel? Catch me outside seaweeding uh, or <laughs> on Instagram exclusively where I am at How Now Noel Brown. How about you, Max Williams? Yeah, you can find my personal stuff on Twitter uh, at ATL underscore Max Williams. And since we talked about a lot of ephemeral on this, you can find out more about ephemeral on Instagram and Twitter at ephemeral.show. We actually have an episode, a two-part coming out this week. It's about uh, Erling Kagi. I believe I'm saying that name right. If you liked the Peter Freushen episode of this show, you would love that episode as well. Very Peter Freushen-like. I saw uh, Alex post about it, saying that it was one of his favorite conversations he's ever had for this show. So I think it's going to be a really good one. I can't wait to check it out. And let me say really quickly, Ridiculous Stories, when Max says his personal stuff on, uh, on Twitter, it gets quite personal, let me tell you. Very Ooh. spicy. Ooh. It's uh, pretty much your, your Twitter is just default setting on After Dark. Mm-hmm. Hot Tub Talk with Max Williams. Max Williams. I'll get there one day. Uh, so uh, thank you, of course, to Max for uh, spinning this straw into audio gold. Thanks, of course, to uh, Mr. Casey Pegram. Thanks to Alex Williams. Uh, and thanks to our, at this point, long lost, much missed, sort of missed nemesis Jonathan Strickland aka the Quister Christopher Asiotis Eve Jeffcoats here in spirit uh, uh, everyone else my mom um, the, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln Tom Waits you know, you know please what my, is he building my dad no, no, um, no, no one knows yeah the colonel uh, and, 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 and everyone else that we've forgotten uh, we, we love you all uh, and uh, we'll see you next time folks For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills, into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. 